got to put my notes up here, because if I don't, you guys aren't getting lunch today. So uh, this week we're starting a new series. We're really, really, really excited. I heard Paul laugh. It was a little late. That's okay, Paul. I love you. Um, <laughs> we're starting a new series called The Others, and it's, uh, it's the people, the fine print of the Bible, the people who are heroes of the faith, but they're a little less known, and they're not as prevalent in Scripture. So uh, the text we're using for this today, uh, for the whole series really, the idea behind it is in Hebrews, and I'm going to read it for you, and I believe it's on the screens, you can read along, or if you don't want to read, close your eyes and just visualize what's happening here. Hebrews 11. It was by faith that the people of Israel went right through the Red Sea as though they were on dry ground, but then the Egyptians tried to follow, they were all drowned. It was by faith that the people of Israel marched around Jericho for seven days, and the walls came crashing down. It was by faith that Rahab the prostitute was not destroyed with the people in her city who refused to obey God, for she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. How much more do I need to say? It would take too long to recount the stories of the faith of Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah, David and Samuel and all the prophets. By faith, these people overthrew kingdoms. They ruled with justice and received what God had promised them. They shut the mouths of lions and quenched the flames of fire and escaped death by the edge of the sword. Their weakness was turned into strength. They became strong in battle and put whole armies to flight. Women received their loved ones back again from death. But others were tortured, refused to turn from God in order to be set free. They placed their hope and a better life after the resurrection. Some were jeered at and had their backs cut open with whips. Others were chained in prisons. Some died by stoning. Some were sawn in half, and others were killed with the sword. Some went about wearing skins of sheep and goats, destitute and oppressed and mistreated. They were too good for this world, wandering over deserts and mountains, hiding in caves and holes in the ground. All these people earned a good reputation because of their faith, yet none of them received all that God had promised. For God had something better in mind for us so that they would not reach perfection without us. The others, the others. These are the people we want to talk about. These are the people who aren't listed as great heroes of our faith, the people who left their mark in the Bible, who left their mark in history, in his story, but they don't necessarily get a shot at the limelight. And I want to touch on one in particular today, but before we do that, I have some photos that I want to show you guys. So go ahead and look at the screens, and I've got a few to show you here. Does anybody know what this is? Duct tape. Does anybody know what the duct tape's currently doing? It's fixing something. Let's, let's go to another photo here. I'm going to go through a few of these. Uh, has, has anybody ever done this to their car? No? no? No one's ever had it that bad. And one more. Okay, Cody, this one is especially for you. Cody, Cody uh, doesn't like this one, and I don't think most people would like this or should like this. We're going to switch here. Can you hear me? All right, we're going to lose that microphone, which is kind of difficult because I need my hands for part of this, but that's okay. I could do it single-handed. All right, I don't know how many more photos I have, but there's a few more if I have them. This, this is an entire prom outfit, a tuxedo and dress made entirely from duct tape, and they actually offer scholarships if you make your tuxedo out of duct tape. So 
uh, these people were going for that. I don't know if they got it or not, but that's a great photo. Probably a little much for what I would do, but I really like it. And if I have any more pictures, Cody. Okay, this one is from Mythbusters. And they actually made, they did a whole episode on duct tape. It was fantastic. They actually made a boat out of duct tape, and uh, it worked beautifully. And I think I have another Mythbusters photograph in there. This is a cannon that they made out of duct tape. Now, this photo, this is a steel shaft here, and then the back of it was duct tape. But they later in the episode made an entire cannon and actually launched a cannonball from it. Is that all of them, Cody? Yes? Okay. So that's all of my duct tape photos. Well, duct tape is something that, many of us use, and many of us at times have taken advantage of. But I want to give you a little bit of detail on where duct tape came from and the people in the fine print, the others behind duct tape. So do you guys want to hear a little bit about duct tape? Sure, okay. I mean, we can just skip it. I've got all this colorful duct tape up here. We can just skip over it and don't have to do anything with it. I actually am going to try to make something for you out of duct tape. So uh, this is going to be interesting with a handheld microphone, but I'm going to give you the history and hold on, wait for it, get it started. See if you guys can hear this. All right. So duct tape. Today I would like you to meet someone named Vesta Stout. Does anybody know what Vesta Stout had her hand in inventing? Okay, well, if you guessed duct tape, you're right. If you guessed stout beer, no, you were wrong. I probably wouldn't be talking about her because I don't like drinks that resemble used motor oil. So that is not what Vesta invented. Vesta was the mother of two in the Navy in the 1940s. And her sons went out to war, <clears throat> and she wanted to be able to help. But as a woman, she could not go on the front lines. So Vesta decided that her contribution would be instead of a stay-at-home mom or a woman working in the office or doing other things, that she would work in a munitions factory. And Vesta actually worked in the Green River Ordnance Factory right here in Illinois. Now, Vesta's job was to inspect and package cartridge grenades. Now, I have a photograph of these rifled grenade cartridges, and... If you could put that up there. Oh, I'm getting my fingers stuck in some duct tape. So Vesta inspected and packaged these. This isn't like your average bullet cartridge. Uh, these, they're not quite this big. That's a little excessive. But uh, these actually would go on the end of the soldier service rifle. And then if you look at the bottom left of the photo, what looks like a blank bullet cartridge, that would actually go into the gun. And then they would slide the grenade over the end of the rifle. And then they could launch the grenades a better distance than if they were throwing them. It wasn't quite as effective as a dedicated grenade launcher, but the soldiers could carry these with them. So Vesta's job was to inspect and package these. And then she would package them up, cover them in the box and tape the seams, and then she'd put wax over the tape to keep it waterproof. Well, her sons being in the Navy told her, Mom, these cartridges that you guys are packaging for us, we cannot get them out fast enough. The paper will rip when we try to open the box, and it does us no good out in the battlefield. Sometimes it can cost us a few extra minutes, and those are minutes that we don't have when we're taking on enemy fire. So Vesta, as a mother of two in the Navy, knew that she wanted to do something that could help her son. So what did she do? She did what any mother who wanted to keep her son safe 
she came up with an idea. And she brought that idea to her supervisors, and she was trying to make a better product to seal the boxes so that they could rip it open easier in the battlefield. She said, I want to use a cloth-based tape that we can cover with something that would be waterproof so the soldiers could rip it. So, almost done here. Just a little more. Okay, beautiful. So, she brought this idea to her supervisors. They shot it down, and she brought it to their supervisors, and they said, yeah, that's a cool idea. Awesome. Way to go. Uh, no thanks. We'll just keep doing it the way we're doing it. Well, Vesta didn't take no for an answer. Her supervisors told her no. Her supervisors' supervisors told her no. And she knew that she wanted to have an impact. She knew that she wanted to make what her sons were doing a little more safe for them. So she did what any caring mother would do. She went to the highest power she could think of. And in 1943, she wrote a letter that started out, Mr. President. Vesta did not take no for an answer. And I think there's someone in here who needs to hear that today. If you get nothing else out of this, which I hope you do, but you are getting told no. If you're getting told no through a diagnosis or through work or through family or through health, whatever your no is, whatever is stopping you from doing what God has intended for you to do, you need to work past that and be like Vesta. Be persistent. Don't give up. Don't take no for an answer because God has something far better for you. And Vesta didn't take no. And a month later, the unthinkable happened. Vesta got a letter from the War Production Board in Washington, D.C., and it said, Vesta, thank you for your idea. It has been approved, and we have submitted it to Johnson & Johnson to go into full production. Your idea of duct tape is going to hit the battlefields, and it is going to save lives. So duct tape, this, this thing that we take for granted, it was invented by... Johnson & Johnson with the inspiration from a woman who didn't want her name in the papers, who didn't want a shot at the limelight, who didn't want money or wealth. She just wanted to make a difference. And just like Vesta, there are people in God's word. Now, do you guys know what I just made here? This is a wallet out of duct tape, and it is a designer shade of, anybody? Navy blue. Who wants a duct tape made wallet? Okay, you guys, come on. Did you see how hard that was to make one-handed? Okay, Cody, you're getting the wallet. I'm just going to throw it, and you can, beautiful. I actually used to have one of those in high school, and my wife's like, did you have to YouTube that? And I'm like, really? Duct tape wallet? Did I YouTube? No, I did not have to YouTube that. The duct tape wallet, maybe in high school I did, but um, it, I had one in high school. I like it because it's really thin and water-resistant. Anyway, so great, duct tape. Uh, Vesta, though, what a, what a cool story. Someone who just wouldn't take no for an answer. Someone who we probably never have heard her name. I didn't ever hear her name until I started researching this. And Johnson & Johnson has a great section on their website with history aspects of their company. And one of them is the story of Vesta. Um, what, what a great, great story that Vesta could change such a small thing, but then it's something that now we have and now we have designer duct tape and all these different shades. I don't think Vesta ever thought that would come to be. So thank you, Vesta Stout. So just like that, something that we use in everyday life. There's people in the Bible who we don't know about, people who have changed history, people who have shaped the church as we know it today. And today I want to talk to you about one of those people. And in order to do that, we're going to bust into the book of Acts, and there's a lot of information in Acts on this. So who's ready for a little Bible study? 
Who's ready for a little storytelling? Okay, very cool. Some of the verses are going to be on the screen, and some of them are not. And if they're not on the screen, you can go ahead and close your eyes and just visualize what is happening as I'm reading this scripture. Rest assured, if I see your eyes are shut too long, I will throw one of these rolls of duct tape at you. So do not fall asleep while I'm reading these. If they're on the screen, you can follow along. Otherwise, just close your eyes and listen. Acts chapter 4, all the believers who are united in heart and mind, and they felt that what they owned was not their own, so they shared everything they had. The apostles testified powerfully to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and God's great blessing was upon them all. There were no needy people among them because those who owned land or houses would sell them and bring the money to the apostles to give to those in need. I want to pause right there. I promise we'll get to the person that we're going to talk about today. I've got like 18 pages, 19, 20 pages. We'll get there. Okay, so I want to pause right there on, on that. There were no needy people among them. It says there were no needy people among them. Why? It wasn't because of government handouts. It wasn't because of higher minimum wage. It wasn't because of welfare. It wasn't because of food stamps or anything the government bodies did. God's plan doesn't rely on the government to provide for the poor. And hear me out, I'm not saying the government should not do those. What I'm saying is that God's plan is that his church would be the ultimate provision for the poor and needy. The government cannot fill the void that God has called his people, you and I, to fill. And I'm not saying the government's wrong for helping those people. I just think that the government is stepping in to fill a void that the church is missing out on. We are missing out on God's calling to bless and to provide for and to help the people who are poor and needy. When you see a need and you have an abundance, I just feel like, why, why wouldn't you want to give to that? And I can hear the critics now because I've had these discussions. I've had these discussions firsthand. And it's, well, well, if I give to the poor, well, they're just going to buy drugs or alcohol. Or if I give to the poor, well, they should just get a job, really. Let's just be honest. They're just lazy. That's, or, or this one, this is a very common one. I'm just enabling them. And <laughs> you know what God's word says about that? It says, then the king will say to those on his right, come you who are blessed by my father and inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the creation of the world. For I was hungry and you fed me. I was thirsty and you gave me a drink. I was a stranger and you invited me into your home. I was naked and you gave me clothing. I was sick and you cared for me. I was in prison and you visited me. Then these righteous ones will reply, Lord, when did we ever see you hungry and feed you? Or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we ever see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will say, I tell you the truth. When you did it for one of the least of these, my brothers and sisters, you were doing it for me. You see, our role as Christ followers, as Christians, is not to judge other people and decide for them what they will do with the gifts that we give them. Our role, what we are called to do, is to be generous and to listen to the Holy Spirit's promptings and do exactly what God is asking of us. And it's so cool because when you do that, scriptures say that when you give to one of the least of these, you're giving directly to God. And how cool is that to be able to provide for God? God doesn't need us to do anything for him. God spoke the world into an existence, and with, with mere words, he could do anything that he wants. But he wants to give us the opportunity to serve the poor, to serve him. So don't miss out on that. Let's get back to Acts. There were no needy people among them because those who owned land or houses would sell it and bring the money to the apostles and give it to those in need. For instance, there was Joseph, the one of the apostles nicknamed Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. 
He was from the tribe of Levi and came from the island of Cyprus. He sold a field he owned and brought the money to the apostles. Now, this is our first encounter with Barnabas, and this is our person today that we're talking about. So if you're taking notes, write that down. Barnabas. And that one snippet alone would be enough to bring Barnabas into mention. But it, that story for Barnabas, it, it doesn't, doesn't end there. It keeps going. And just think about what Barnabas did in that. He sold land and brought that money to the church. Now, can you imagine being in on the ground floor of the church? We're talking day one. Barnabas is seeing that Jesus... The message of Jesus can change lives. He's seeing that he needs to share this, and he wants to do it at all costs. So he sells his land. He brings the money to the church and says, do with this money as you need to. And then Barnabas' investment in the church, his investment in the church then has grown for generation and generation and generation and has changed millions of people's eternity. Can you imagine being in on the ground floor, that investment, how long it could grow and how much he could reap back on the other side of eternity. That enough is to make me, that, that, that there's enough to make me just want to give everything that I have to the church, everything that I have to the church to see the impacts that it could have on other people. Let's go back to Acts. Meanwhile, Saul was uttering threats with every breath and was eager to kill the Lord's followers. So Saul is going out killing anyone who's following Jesus he went to the high priest, and he requested letters addressed to the synagogues in Damascus, asking for their cooperation in the arrest of any followers of the way. Followers of the way, that's Christians prior to the name Christian. He wanted to bring them in, both men and women, to Jerusalem and change. And as he was pr- approaching Damascus on this mission, remember he's on this mission to find Christians and arrest them, a light from heaven suddenly shone down around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. And the voice replied, I am Jesus, the one who you are persecuting. Now get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. The men with Saul stood speechless, for they heard the sound of someone's voice, but saw no one. Saul picked himself up off the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he was blind, as are some of you right now. So his companions led him by the hand to Damascus. He remained there blind for three days and did not eat or drink. Now, there was a believer in Damascus named Ananias, and the Lord spoke to him in a vision, calling, Ananias, yes, Lord. He replied, the Lord said, go over to Straight Street to the house of Judas, and when you get there, ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul. He is praying to me right now. I've shown him a vision of a man named Ananias coming in and laying hands on him so he can see again. But Lord, exclaimed Ananias, I've heard many people talk about terrible things that this man has done to the believers in Jerusalem. And he is authorized by the leading priest to arrest anyone who calls upon your name. But the Lord said, go, for Saul is my chosen instrument to take my message to the Gentiles and to the kings, as well as to the people of Israel. And I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. So Ananias went and found Saul, and he laid his hands on him and said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road, has sent me so that you might regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And instantly something like scales fell from Saul's eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he got up and was baptized. And afterwards he ate some food and regained his strength. And I promise you, when I'm done with this message, we can all go eat some food and regain our strength 
I know I'm going to, and depending on how far over I go, you guys are going to be real excited for that part of the message. Just remember that part of the message when you're eating that Saul went and ate after he was converted to Jesus. So, you guys got this? What, what's going on with Saul? You guys understand it? So he was like, hey, I'm going to kill you guys. And then Jesus was like, don't do that. And he was like, I'm blinded. And you guys were all like, we can relate. Okay, cool. So those listening on the podcast, we blinded the whole crowd when I talked about that. So uh, just like look at the light in your room and you'll feel the same experience that the crowd here did. So we just got a partial biography on Saul. And uh, I know you guys are like, well, I thought you said we were talking about uh, Barnabas. What's up with Saul? Well, yeah, yes. Um, we are going to get to Barnabas, I promise, but uh, the, the others encompasses so many people, and knowing the importance that they have in Scripture, uh, I, I want to mention as many of them as I can. And another example of the others is Ananias, who by the direction of God was able to restore sight to Saul. Saul, the one who used to murder Christians, is now a champion for the faith and sharing the gospel message with anyone. And how could he have done that if he was blind? Well, well I'm sure I'm sure God could have used him, but but... I think God used Ananias to restore his sight so that he could share the gospel. And I know these stories seem unrelated, but, but we'll get there. They are going to tie into Barnabas. So, so they, they couldn't be any more related to Barnabas. And let's, let's pick back up in Acts. Saul stayed with the believers in Damascus for a few days, and immediately he began preaching about Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is indeed the Son of God. All who heard him were amazed. Isn't this the same man who used to cause such devastation among Jesus's followers in Jerusalem, they asked. And didn't he come here to arrest and take them in chains to the leading priests? Saul's preaching became more and more powerful, and the Jews in Damascus couldn't refute his proofs that Jesus was indeed the Messiah. And after a while, some of the Jews plotted together to kill him. The man who was hunting the Christians is now being hunted. They were watching for him day and night at the city gate so they could murder him. But Saul was told about their plot. So during the night, some of the other believers lowered him in a large basket through an opening in the city wall. Did you guys hear that? The other believers, more people who are not named, writing history. When Saul arrived in Jerusalem, he tried to meet with the believers, but they were all afraid of him. (laughs) They didn't believe that he had truly become a believer. Then... Barnabas, you guys are like, oh man, there's that guy, finally, it's awesome, Barnabas, brought him to the apostles and told them how Saul had seen the Lord on the way to Damascus and how the Lord had spoken to Saul. He also told them that Saul had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So Saul, who was persecuting Christians, is now preaching the good word to Christians, but the Christians are fearful they don't believe them. They're like, oh, Saul wants in on the Bible study, and they're like, I don't know if we should let him in on the Bible study, because this guy is probably just trying to get in on the Bible study, so once he finds us, he can kill us or arrest us, and then Barnabas comes in, the son of encouragement comes in and says, no, guys, I have seen what this man is doing, and he is preaching boldly about Jesus. He encountered Jesus, and his life was changed. So Saul stayed with the apostles and went all around Jerusalem with them, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. He debated with some Greek-speaking Jews, but they tried to murder him. When the believers heard about this, they took him down to Caesarea and sent him away to Tarsus, his hometown. The church then had peace throughout Judea, Galilee, and Samaria, and it became stronger as the believers lived in fear of the Lord. And with the encouragement of the Holy Spirit, it also grew in numbers. This is great. So Saul has been transformed, and he is starting to change the course of history, and 
Saul gets a lot of that credit in the Bible, but behind the scenes with Saul is this other, this person of the fine print, Barnabas. We're going to pick back up in chapter 11. As I told you guys, we're doing a Bible study on Acts today, so uh, you guys just write some of this down. Like You're like, Acts, okay, he did the whole thing. So when you get home, read it all again, and uh, that'll verify what I'm saying. Meanwhile, the believers who had been sacrificed, sorry, had been scattered during the persecution after Stephen's death, traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch of Syria. They preached the word of God, but only to Jews. However, some of the believers who went to Antioch from Cyprus and Cyrene began preaching to the Gentiles about the Lord Jesus. The power of the Lord was with them, and a large number of these Gentiles believed and turned to the Lord. When the church at Jerusalem heard what had happened, they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he arrived and saw this evidence of God's blessing, he was filled with joy and he encouraged the believers to stay true to the Lord. Barnabas was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and strong in faith, and many people were brought to the Lord. Then Barnabas went on to Tarsus to look for Saul. When he found him, he brought him back to Antioch. Both of them stayed there with the church for a full year, teaching large crowds of people. It was at Antioch that the believers were first called Christians. Hold on a second. Did you guys hear that last sentence? It was at Antioch that the believers were first called Christians. Before that, they were called people of the way. And Barnabas's footprint, Barnabas's impact on us receiving the name Christians, little Christs, Christ followers. Barnabas was there when that happened. And this is someone that we don't even talk about that often. Are you guys seeing a theme that these life-changing, these world-changing events can happen from people who aren't in the limelight, people who aren't as well-known. If you're still looking for an example of someone written in the fine print of the Word of God and they're doing something, literally writing history, this, this is the example of that. You and I received the name that we associate with because of Barnabas. Acts 13 among the prophets and teachers of the church at Antioch of Syria were Barnabas, Simeon, Lucius, Manaean, and Saul. One day, as these men were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Appoint Barnabas and Saul for the special work to which I have called them. So after more fasting and prayer, these men laid their hands on them and sent them on their way. Again, more unspoken men, not even named laying their hands and preparing Saul and Barnabas for their missionary journey. All those other names there, people that we, we don't know all of, but again, writing history. God takes time to mention these people, these people that the name may only be mentioned once in the whole Bible, but, but when writing the Bible, God didn't think, ah, no, there's not enough room. Do we really need all these names? Ah, we probably could cut them out. The Holy Spirit breathed this word into the people writing the scripture, and he did not leave out these names. There is a reason that these names are in there, and I think it is because God wants us to see that the church the bride of Christ that he is coming back for is not built on the gifts and talents of a few, but on the sacrifices of many people. If I could summarize today's message into one phrase, if I could take a leap and summarize the entire Others series into one phrase, it would be that the church is not built on the gifts and talents of a few, but the sacrifices of many I heard that from another pastor, and I just thought it rang so true to what we're speaking about, and it, it hit me so deeply in my heart. 
We're not just talking about a few talented band members that are up here singing. We're not just talking about someone preaching or the people and kids who are preaching to them and changing the eternities and generations to come. We're not just talking about the people at the door when you walk in that you see. We're not just talking about all of the visible roles. There are so many people. And in the early days, it was literally built on the sacrifice of Barnabas. He had sold that piece of land, and he brought all the money to the apostles, all of it. Not some of it. He sold it and brought all of it. And he sacrificed what was his to the church, to God's kingdom. He invested into people's eternities. The church is not built on the gifts and talents of a few, but on the sacrifices of many. God wants us to see that everyone in the church has a role. It's not just the visible roles. Everybody here has the opportunity to have their hand in the history that is being written today. And in our church, there are people who fall into this category. There are countless people who have been involved in the ins and outs and the details that make our church run. Sure, there's people on stage in the visible roles. And, and that doesn't make them any more important. But the success of the church is not on just the visible roles. Many people have no idea what goes on behind the scenes to make an average weekend happen at Church 214. You guys experienced for a brief moment a behind-the-scenes moment when Austin came up and brought me a microphone because behind the scenes, the other microphone I had was failing, and Austin knew exactly what to do. And in case you're unaware, uh, we do not own this building so we rent the space on Sundays, and renting comes with some great advantages, but it also comes with its challenges. Its challenges being that when we got here this morning, there was nothing set up. It was an empty room, both in this room and over in kids, nothing set up. And there's a team of people every single week that come to make this happen. Since we've started here, we've had teams of people come in every single week, hours before most people walk through the doors, to make sure that the doors are unlocked, to make sure that people feel welcome. And then there's the setup. Oh, the setup. We've talked about taking a time lapse so we could show you everything that goes into it. I just don't think a time lapse would serve justice what it takes to make an average weekend happen. And kids, there are banners and signs and chairs and pipe and drape and, and more chairs and sound systems and screens and games and snacks and toys and the check-in system and all sorts of other stuff that needs set up every single week. In this room, we have chairs that you guys are sitting on. We have tables in the back. We have signs to direct people where they're supposed to go. We have signs that get stuck on the outside of the building with magnets. Those get rolled up and unrolled every week to put up so people driving by can see that there is a church meeting here, that this building today is a house of God. And then we have the chairs you guys are sitting in, one at a time, have to be pulled off a cart, unstacked, set up, one by one, row by row, so that people can have somewhere to sit to receive the word of God. And then the band. Let's talk about the band for a moment. The band shows up to an empty stage. There's no gear. There's no instruments. There's no cables, nothing set up for them. The guitars have to bring their guitars and cables and pedal boards and amplifiers and speakers with them. The drummers... This one's near and dear to my heart. They have to bring their entire drum kit, and I know a drummer who will remain nameless. It takes seven trips up and down out of my, his basement to load the drums into 
the vehicle. So every single week, the drummer, Daryl, this week has to tear down his kit, bring it here, set it up, play, tear down, bring it back home. Not to mention the practice time that goes into that. The vocalists have to memorize music. And you think it's hard trying to sing in key. And for some of you, believe me, I understand the struggle. You struggle to sing in key. And that's fine. The Lord still loves hearing you sing. I don't have to, but he does. And that's good enough. But the vocalists don't only have to sing in key. They have to memorize songs. I don't know if you've ever noticed, we don't have music stands up here. When the band is up here, they don't have music stands. So these songs, some of them new to the band that week, the musicians have to memorize these songs and learn them. They have to learn vocal parts and dynamics and harmonies and melodies and lyrics and timing week after week. The band does that. Imagine standing up here like the band did this week and then giving everything that you have after all that preparation, hours of preparation through the week and then hours of preparation in the mornings. And the band is giving everything that they have, sometimes to the point where they don't have a voice at the end, and just to see that the church stands there with their hands in their pocket, complacent, because we're too worried about what someone next to us might think if we sing. We're not concerned about the breakthrough that could happen when we lift up our voice and lift up our hands to worship the one who gave everything for us, but we stand complacently because we don't want our neighbor to think badly of us if we start to sway or if we move, or if we do what David did and we dance before the Lord. And the list goes on and on and on. It's the people of the fine print. It's the others that make this happen. And there's someone in particular that comes here every single week, and he's one of the first people in, and he's always one of the last people out. I've got a photo of him. Does anybody know this guy? I think I have another photo of him, maybe. I, I tried taking a ton of photos of, okay, this right here, I'm going to give you a little, a little details here. He's holding what's called a snake. That is behind the drums. All of the drums plug into that, and that makes it so you can hear the drums. And some of you are like, believe me, we can hear. Well, it makes it sound better, so thank you, Rob, for holding that snake. Rob comes in every single week and sets up, and actually, Rob's not even in here today. You know what Rob's doing? He's doing some more other work. He's over in kids making sure that the children can hear a word from God that will change their lives. Some of you have seen Rob around, maybe back at coffee or by the door, shaking hands and greeting people, and, and he's always there trying to make people feel welcome. But, but every week after church, he is here tearing down all of the stuff over in kids. He comes in and rolls equipment back over there. Rob stands by that area to make sure that all of our stuff that we store in the building next door gets stacked properly. That little wooden thing that has all of those rubber mats, do you see these blue and green mats here? These are so the kids can crawl around without getting their knees all messed up. Rob built that frame, that box, to hold those so that we could stack them here so that we could move them in and out easier as we're setting up and tearing down. Rob does all of this behind the scenes without ever a hope of recognition. And most people don't realize that. Most people don't realize that when they get their kids or when they're talking to people after church that there are people back there watching their children after the kids have heard about Jesus and learned their message. There are people there keeping their children safe while they're out here talking. They don't realize that after they pick up kids and leave, if you stuck around just a few more minutes, you would see that all of that kid's setup over there has to get torn down. The walls have to be folded and rolled away. The mats have to be picked up. The toys have to be cleaned up and sorted. They have to pull sand out of the Play-Doh bin and Play-Doh out of the dinosaurs. And, and all of that has to happen week in and week out. And people don't realize that the church is a humongous team 
of people who stay sometimes a better part of an hour following dismissal to clean up and make sure that this building is presentable for the people who graciously allow us to rent it from them. I don't say this to make you feel guilty. I don't say this to make you think, oh, well, I shouldn't be talking with my friends. I shouldn't be doing what I was doing. Uh, I, sh- I should be helping them. I shouldn't leave until everyone's. That's not what I'm getting at. But I want to challenge you, church, just like Barnabas, just like Ananias, just like countless names of others, people who aren't well-known but have changed eternities for people. You guys have that opportunity today. You have that opportunity week in and week out. And I'm, I'm not asking you if you're already serving to, to serve more and to, to serve every minute that you have. If you want to, that's great. But what I am saying is that the church is not built on just these few people up here. The church is built on the sacrifices of many people. And it takes so much sacrifice to make what happens here every week happen. And I challenge you, church, today, find your fit. Whatever your skill set may be, maybe it's building. We have things that need built. Maybe you're a grandmother and you don't have kids at home anymore and you love holding babies. There's a room for that where babies need to be held and loved. Maybe you're very organized. Maybe you can see patterns in things. Maybe you could be helping Rob stack and organize all of our storage week in and week out. Maybe you're just really strong, and that's awesome because a lot of this stuff is really heavy, and you could help carry it and set it up because every detail matters. Every piece of equipment moved, every chair that's set up represents the potential eternity that could be changed. There's no role that is unimportant. No matter what your skill set is, there is a fit for you. And church, I would challenge you. Use this illustration of Barnabas, someone who wasn't trying to become famous, someone who wasn't trying to get his name in the limelight. Use the story of Vesta, who is a world changer, who, ch- who changed the course of history in one small way by taking a small idea and not giving up on it. Church, find your fit. Some of you, that means you're going to have to go home and pray about it, and you're like, I don't know where I'm going to fit in. Some of you, that means, hey, you don't have to be at lunch till 1230. So you can stay 15 minutes and help stack up chairs and help the band tear down this equipment and help Daryl load his drums up into his vehicle and help kids because the kids have the most setup out of anybody. They have mats and they have walls and they have all that other stuff I listed, and that all needs to be put up every single week and Most people leave immediately after church, and I'm not saying that I'm trying to guilt you into staying because we don't necessarily need everyone to stay, but the more people we have, the more sacrifice we have by many means that more people can have their names written into eternity, written into the others, written into the people of the fine print, the people who have changed lives by their sacrifice. I don't ask for you to serve because we need help. The help is great, but God will always provide what we need. I ask you to serve because when you serve, when you put someone else first, when you take the focus off of me, there's healing that happens. When you remove the focus from yourself and you put it on someone else, something great happens inside of you. 
when you serve someone else, when you serve the least of these, you're doing it for God. So church, I ask you, today, find your fit. Find where you can serve. Find where your name can be written into history.